Hello and welcome to the second series of Catapult Network's Supercharging Innovation Podcast. I'm Catherine Bennett, CEO of the High Value Manufacturing Catapult and this year's Chair of the Catapult Network. Our network is made up of world-leading technology and innovation centres, established and powered by Innovate UK. This supercharging innovation series explores how the UK must break down barriers to solve national and global challenges and how this can be realised through the power of science, innovation and technology. In the second episode of this series, our expert panel will be discussing how the nation can unlock exponential possibilities for our net zero future. In my sector, that of manufacturing, net zero solutions can be embedded into every part of the process, from powering and heating factories, to transporting goods, to making existing components more efficient. Net zero is changing the way we design, manufacture and use aircraft and cars. But as exciting as our clean green future is, it's not as simple as just developing new technologies. It's about helping that tech to scale up, changing deeply embedded processes, ramping up inward investment, developing workforce and skills, and many other challenges besides. Today, you'll hear from some of our most knowledgeable experts across the catapults. Guy Newey, our Deputy Chair, Christina Garcia-Duffy, and Katie Milne. We also have a very special guest joining us, Right Honourable Chris Skidmore, MP, who's the Chair of the UK Government's Review on Net Zero. What are the toughest innovation challenges to get to a net zero future? How can government policy drive new technology? What are the roles for hydrogen, offshore renewable energy and a whole systems approach? I'll pass over to Guy to get the discussion started. Thank you, Catherine, and welcome to this podcast. I am Guy Newey. I am Chief Executive Officer of the Energy Systems Catapult, part of the Catapult network that uh, Catherine was just talking about. And this podcast is part of our Supercharging Innovation podcast series. Whilst there's lots of other exciting innovations happening across the economy, none in my totally biased view are as exciting or as important as the challenge of net zero and getting the UK to a net zero economy. The question we're going to be grappling with today and look at different aspects of is, do we have all the technology uh, we need for net zero? Do we have all the widgets and different devices and generation technologies and supply technologies which are going to get us there? It's just a case of deploying them. Or do we need a lot more invention and innovation in this sector? And we have got a fantastic panel to grapple with this issue. First of all, we've got Christina Garcia-Duffy, who is the Exec Director at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. She leads there on technology strategy, product and service development, strategic partnerships. Of course, offshore renewable energy has been one of the great uh, UK success stories over the last few years. 
years, but there's plenty more to do that. So very welcome, Christina. We also have Katie Milne. Katie Milne is the programme director of something called the Hydrogen Innovation Initiative, which Katie will talk about later and give much more detail. She is part of the High Value Manufacturing Catapult, which is a network of seven kind of mini catapults, or some of them are not that mini. Um, We're grappling with various elements of the manufacturing opportunity and challenge. So Katie, very welcome. And last but by no means least is the Right Honourable Chris Skidmore, MP who is MP for Kingswood, at least until the next election, when Chris is, I think, sadly, uh, stepping down, unless you've changed your mind. Chris, in the... Kingswood's being, stepping down from me. It's being abolished, so it's sort of, I don't know where to go. Certainly been much missed, but hopefully as impactful on the outside as you have been on the inside. Chris obviously has held a range of ministerial positions since he became an MP, I think in 2010. Most relevant for this is the brief of uh, Minister for Universities and Science and Innovation in the, during that period. Um, so would have been responsible at many levels for the budget that flows down to the catapult. So thanks very much for that, Chris. Also was famously the minister who signed net zero, the kind of commitment to decarbonise the British economy by 2050 into law in 2019. Gosh, it seems a long time ago. And more recently um, was asked by the then Prime Minister to uh, do the Net Zero Review and did an extraordinary job of, I think, talking to every single person in the entire industry across uh, the United Kingdom within a uh, short period of time and really galvanised the sector around his set of recommendations of what needs to happen for Net Zero, of which innovation was a crucial part of it. So brilliant panel to talk through and you're very very welcome. Right. First question, which I'm going to fire at Christina, first of all. What do you think are the toughest challenges to get to a net zero economy? Christina, over to you. 2050 seems like a long way away, and it is not. And I'd say there's a balance of technologies and innovations that are already out there. They've been proven and they're working and then there's a bunch of all emerging technologies coming into play and i think one of the most important challenges that we will be facing is accelerating the development and in some cases because taking complex and sophisticated technologies to the market takes a few years sometimes even decades so that acceleration will be crucial for us to get there In others, because the current economic status and situation is not very amenable for investment at this point in time. So there's not that investment flowing in as it has been in the last decade or so, just because of the the state of the economy. Even when the technology is ready, deploying it at scale needed to reach net zero, it will require scaling up considerably, much more so than we've done in the past and having the supply chain capacity to deliver that is going to be one of the biggest bottlenecks that we will see. Also being able to manufacture and commission in mass amounts, different types of equipment, different technologies, installing those is going to be a great challenge. From an offshore wind perspective, I would say that building that capacity, you know, we have some targets of 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 and some incentives until there. After there, there's not much plan. There's no vision for 2050 and policies that will support the development and the delivery beyond 
that 2030. And that cuts across, as you know, Guy, in areas such as grid development yeah. and faster wind farm consenting. That takes about five years currently. So even if you launch projects now, you would not expect them to be built for another seven or eight years. And that's getting consenting approval and all of that. Supply chains is a bottleneck. And from the offshore wind perspective, ports, port development, port infrastructure, particularly in this country, is going to be tricky. And what's really interesting to hear is, well, you know, offshore wind has, as I said at the start, has been such a huge success story in the UK over the past 15 years. But all the things you're listing are challenges that we've still got to overcome, battle with. What are some of the lessons that other sectors can take from the offshore wind sector in, in terms of innovation? Because, as you say, for many energy innovations, it takes decades before they're ready. And we don't have decades in many cases. Yes, I guess the speed of development, we are doubling the capacity of wind turbines every 10 years. And now every year you get a new development, a 14 megawatt wind turbine, 16 megawatt. Now we're developing 18 megawatts. There's something around agility that is really good and can be learned. The flip side of that is that OEMs are not having the time to understand their products and produce hundreds of these units. They yeah. produce a couple of hundred units and then they're on to the next stage. And as we know, research and development, the non-recurring costs of that are massive. And the status of the industry at this point, the major incumbent OEMs are seeing vast amounts of losses in their books over the last couple of years. It's just not being able to keep at pace. So if anything, I would say it's the opposite, is how can offshore wind learn from more established sectors? At the end of the day, we've been around for 30 years or so. So there's lots we can learn from nuclear, from aerospace, from automotive. That's right. It's probably coming out of the teenage years almost, isn't it, in some ways? Yeah, it is, yeah. Katie, what about you? What, what do you think is the toughest challenge? What other things are, are you excited about and grappling with? Christina was talking a little bit about scaling up and supply chain challenges. I mean, that is a that is a monster effort, right? So I think we've got, in most sectors, we've got deployable first-generation technologies. It's certainly true in hydrogen. So we could deploy hydrogen carbon capture today. We can deploy electrolyzers today but they're first generation technologies and they have a emergent supply chain so we really really have to put in a lot of effort and innovation and engineering to scale up those supply chains you know get more rapid at manufacturing these products and integrating them into different platforms and through doing that through increasing scale drive down cost so that they can compete at the moment, they still have to compete, don't they, with the fossil fuel market. So I think it's those who think driving up scale and using it to drive down costs and into second generation technologies, scaled manufacturing processes. That's the thing that excites me, I suppose. That feels like a tough challenge. And the scale of that is frightening. You know, we've it's like the first industrial revolution all over again in terms of how exponential the growth needs to be. But we've got to do a teardown job at the same time, right? So it's ramp down fossil fuels, ramp up. And it's, it's just pivoting entire global industries across all sectors in the course of 27 years. And as Christina said, it might feel 
that might feel far away, but it doesn't when you think about the scale of the task for industry. I mean, we're particularly interested in the support for hard to abate sectors. Um, and those are really the, the transport sectors that are using high power densities. So things like uh, construction machines, you know, diggers, they really need high draw. They can't really run as well on battery electric all the way up to aircraft. So how do we decarbonize those those hard to bake transport modes? And then also industry. So places like the foundation industries, anywhere where you can't use electricity because it's not hot enough, high temperature processes, like how are we going to replace heat and power in those sectors we've got kind of big challenges on all fronts scales a problem need to dry down costs but in addition what are the routes to to net zero for these really hard to abate sectors and and that's really where hydrogen plays in and and it's what the hydrogen innovation initiative is trying to help make happen great i mean we'll talk about a bit about that uh, later yeah these Hard to abate sectors. You know, before Chris signed uh, net zero into law, everyone was hiding in that last 20%. Everyone was saying, oh, well, don't worry, we'll we'll decarbonize buildings and the electricity system, but we'll get around to it, but we don't need to worry about it for a while. Whereas net zero is punishing in terms of its schedule, but the opportunity is absolutely huge. And Katie, have you seen in the conversations you've had with those sectors, which are described as hard to abate, probably unfairly have you seen a kind of shift in the past four or five years that they're really seriously engaging with this with this and and it's been amazing to see i mean christina and i were both out of the aerospace industry so she can talk to this as well as i as i can but there's been a kind of two-step shift in that sector specifically so first of all there was a big move to battery electric vehicles as kind of helicopter replacement so for small vehicles they refer to it as urban air mobility or air taxis so that was happening is coming through to market now but more recently people have been looking at how do we decarbonize large commercial aircraft are we going to do that through synthetic fuels, sustainable aviation fuels, or are we going to do that through hydrogen? Or do we have to resort to out-of-sector abatements or direct air capture? You know, And the whole sector has come around that in the last few years, sector commitments to net zero 2050, the big primes, the big multinationals are really investing at rate and governments around the world are supporting them. So to see that sector, you know, flying, is famous for being polluting, right? Seeing that yeah. sector really get on this, understanding the timeline to 2050 has been incredibly inspiring. And honestly, for me as an engineer going into aerospace, it was quite incremental, the stuff we were doing when I started my career. I was lucky, I think, because I was in materials, so there was still some like really exciting, sexy engineering happening in that specific area. But otherwise, that was incremental technology development. Now, if you go into aerospace, the level of innovation is just off the charts. It's such an exciting place to be. And it's across the board, really. It's like best time to be an engineer since Brunel, that kind of period in time really i think what a fantastic thing to hear and that's certainly what the team the energy systems catapult are thinking across the catapult network we've got a lot of very excited engineers which is means we've got half a chance of solving some of these challenges chris what about you when you've been thinking about this issue you've been doing your review what are the things that you think oh gosh that's going to be a tricky one to to overcome it's a tough innovation challenge to face 
obviously it would be easy to say the overall issue around grid capacity storage you know the, the general sort of nuts and bolts issue obviously that was the number one mission of the the net zero review to have a sort of a grid mission but what i actually want to focus on is not the supply side but on the demand side because i think it's important when we put innovation in a context it must be user-led and Katie's obviously spoken about energy intensives Industries that through no fault of their own are traditionally very conservative, they only get one chance to do this yes, right and they can't sort of stop mid-flow. You, you can't necessarily turn off the blast furnaces and if it goes wrong, it's catastrophic. Understanding how innovation can fit within those who use these innovations yeah, is absolutely critical. But the question is, is that you know, innovation will only succeed if households, those who are using electric vehicles, those who can see the purpose of having a heat pump can actually sort of see that technology is working for them and not against them. So what I'm really keen to do is say, yeah, we're, this is an exceptional transition because it's exceptional that we have to deal with the climate crisis. But actually, net zero is no different from any other transition. And, and the success of the transition will come about through innovation that demonstrates actually what this is going to deliver for the user. So it's no different from, I think, don't be facetious, but yeah, 11% of all households had a smart TV back in 2012, it's now 80% of all households. Obviously, there was a price point that came around, but also there was an innovation point around the innovation, bringing down the learning costs of the actual components as well. But also the technology was then proven to be far more efficient and, and, and generally easier to use. And so that's the challenge, I think, and this exciting challenge to demonstrate that you know, net zero isn't going to just put in the too difficult box this is a change that's going to happen. Let's make the change something that people can embrace because they can see the hope and future for it. Batteries, you know, the big challenge around electric vehicles from a user perspective is how do we get these things to run further? How can we ensure we bring down the cost of the components so that the life cycle of the battery is longer than and less expensive than the overall cost of the car? How do we ensure that that you know, means that the secondhand car market is going to work effectively with you know, these batteries in place as well? So that's what I'm not quite interested in focusing on is how the innovation relates to the demand side. And you know, the Net Zero Review had pillar six was net zero in the future. And that was very much focused on how can we create the policy frameworks by which we can allow innovation to thrive. Because when I was you know, science minister, often it's like, give us the money. Yeah, we need the money. We want the triple tripartite helix of public funding versus private funding. But it's more complex than that. With, yeah, with these new innovations, we need new regulations, more flexibilities to allow these to come on stream at the same time as existing technologies and to sort of segue in uh, rather than being sort of too disruptive. There's almost a sense of innovation, which is we'll sprinkle some money, often very significant sums of money, and we'll throw it out to institutions like catapults and other you know, research and technology organizations and universities and, and others like that. And then things will bubble up and then they'll just be deployed away. And uh, the offshore wind turbines of 18 gigawatts that Christina will talk, it'll just appear and they'll be deployed in, in the market. Is government thinking enough about that, that journey as you discover? Is it thinking enough about the barriers to deployment, which is as big an innovation challenge as, as others? I think that the challenge is how do we ensure that things don't become victims of their own success? So once everyone lands on a, a identifiable sort of successful policy model, a framework uh, for scaling up, then they try to think that that is applicable to everything under the sun. 
So, you know, the CFD model, which everyone pats themselves on the back for, which has been you know, incredibly useful and, and impactful for offshore wind. Contract for Difference, for those of the listeners who are not familiar with this, it's kind of support mechanism for lots of uh, renewable technologies. Everyone's now trying to create the CFD for hydrogen, the CFD for CCUS, as if that is the gospel. Uh, and we've seen, obviously, from the latest sort of auction round with the sort of failure of offshore wind, I mean, ministers were told repeatedly that this was going to happen, that they needed to reform the CFD. They needed to look at the wider supply chain sort of context around what do we mean by value? What do we mean about local content? And obviously, that's now sort of an emerging thing that's happening in Europe as well with batteries. So the challenge is actually innovation within the civil service and government being agile and recognizing that time is moving fast. You know, in the States, there is an arsenal of, of policy options in place. We don't just put all our eggs in one basket. And I think that's the challenge for innovation in the UK. And it has been in the past when it comes to grants. With UKRI, we've had a grant process where, you know, endlessly people are having to sort of fill out applications for grants and spend a lot of time on this competitive element when we know we need these technologies anyway. And we can't ever compete against each other. So there are ways in which we've got to be, I think, more flexible in government to deliver on this. And also the other thing about the net zero review is that stability, certainty, clarity, consistency, and making sure we don't just try to endlessly reinvent the wheel. Yeah. So once we've got certain competitions or we've got grants that have been established, or even like the catapult network. You know, when I was a minister, there was a moment when it was slightly under review and I had to order another review of the catapult network to make sure it was working efficiently. You know, the Fraunhofer uh, in Germany works because it's been established for over 60 years and it's just sort of been allowed to carry on. There's also a clarion call for you know, making sure that you know, when we have certain institutional structures, we try to also continue to have that stability as well. You won't hear any dissent on that last point, uh, Chris, from us in the Catapult Network. And, you know, one of the really positive things over the last the last few years is we seem to have got past that stop-start kind of, you know, commitment over five years, which is fantastic and allows us to plan and work with industry to really deliver on that. Uh, Christina, just picking up that last point, obviously, you know, we were recording this relatively recently after, as Chris said, we had a, an auction, which for offshore wind in particular, which has been the kind of workhorse over the last kind of five or six well, the last 10 years, really, in terms of decarbonisation, was unsuccessful for those people who are unaware of this because the kind of minimum price that the government set in the auction was not at the appropriate level. What do we learn from that in terms of that policy framework that is needed? And what, what is the industry hoping for that will continue beyond 2030, as you see it? You can imagine we've been having fairly open conversations over the last few weeks after the auction round five results. Um, It is about the cost. It is the fact that there's been a track record of reducing the cost of fixed bottom offshore wind for the last 10 years. And it gets to a point where without more reliability, on the wind farms over longer periods of time, it no longer becomes economically viable for the developers to bid into the auction rounds. And that's what's happened. I guess from an industry perspective, asking government, and we've had plenty of conversations, to be more agile, to understand. And perhaps it's been a situation of 
government thinking, well, it may be a bluff or it may be a glitch for a couple of years where the economy is not doing so well. And eventually, you know, the CFDs are for 15 years. So we will get something through the door. And from the industry perspective, it's given government a wake-up call to say we can no longer do this. We can no longer reduce the cost because, um, you know, one of the developments that has just been halted, they've seen increase in their costs of 40% because it's across everything, your materials, your supply chain, your logistics. So how can you bid for new work if you're seeing that cost increase? And I think there's two mechanisms. So there's the CFD associated with launching the capacity, ensuring that there's that amount of capacity, which is great even greater if it gave longer-term stability. What happens in many cases is the developers go around, bid for these auctions, and then they think about the supply chain. Then they think about which wind turbines am I going to source. And they give the wind turbine providers a couple of years of notice. If we had more stability and longer windows in the CFD where there's more time to do, that would provide the supply chain with order books that extend seven or eight years instead of two or three years, which is in kind what happens with aerospace. The order books are very stable, very long-term. That gives stability for the supply chain to know there's a pipeline and they can invest in innovation and technology. Yeah, totally understood. What about Chris's challenges? Government has a success story and suddenly the answer to any problem is let's have a CFD. But what about a technology like floating offshore wind, which is an earlier stage, obviously huge market potential because you're not restricted by kind of shallow seabeds in the same way. How should policymakers think about the innovation, the you know, innovation like floating offshore, or should they just use a, the CFD hammer, as it were, again? What I'd like to see for floating offshore wind, obviously, they're part of two different pricing. Again, no results this time on AR5. We need to look at the cost reduction pathways for floating offshore wind and put appropriate um, administrative strike prices for that bucket that are perhaps a little bit higher than now. I would love to see uh, large-scale publicly funded offshore wind innovation programs, particularly around floating offshore wind. We have a couple of floating offshore wind farms already. They're about 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts, so just a few units. It would be brilliant to have open access offshore demonstration parks where we can test the technologies. There's plenty of innovation there around different floating structures, whether they're steel or cement, there's moorings, anchorings. There's a massive opportunity for the UK to transfer the knowledge we have in oil and gas, particularly into floating offshore wind, because there's masses of experience there. And It's an opportunity as well for the UK to not be out of it, to be more in it and have a larger UK content in floating than what we've had in fixed up to now. So it's, you know, lots of activities beyond the CFD, particularly around that large scale innovation program 
and demo sites. Moving on from floating offshore wind to another super exciting technology. Katie, I'm going to come over to you. The role of hydrogen in a net zero future. Have you been around this game as long as I have? Lived through one hydrogen hype cycle in the kind of pre-2010, and we've definitely over the last few years lived through another one. Be really interested in you telling us about uh, the Hydrogen Innovation Initiative, but also how you see the role of uh, hydrogen in a future economy, because it's one of the most controversial and disputed parts of the future economy. I think what's not disputed, though, is that we need solutions for these hard to abate sectors, you know, that we were talking about previously. And, and there's no silver bullets, are there? But hydrogen is a high potential candidate with understood technology solutions and engineering pathways to deployment for several of those hard to abate sectors. So whether it's as a feedstock into ammonia, which makes our fertilizers, currently we get hydrogen for that from fossil fuels, believe it or not, by a process called steam methane reforming, whether it's as a fuel source, uh, which is burnt in aeroplanes, in diggers, whether it's as a feedstock for synthetic fuels, clean, green synthetic fuels, or whether it's as part of a, a manufacturing process, either to create heat or to produce glass. Hydrogen can do all these things. Now, it's not without challenges, but first-generation tech is ready for multiple routes for producing hydrogen. It can be deployed at scale, but we need to do that massive ramp-up thing that I was talking about before. So that's where I see the role of, of hydrogen. The Hydrogen Innovation Initiative. So, I mean, hydrogen is not a sector, you know, in the same way that offshore renewable energy is now a sector. Hydrogen bridges across 10 sectors. So we're in, you know, I've just listed a few of them on the end use, but also energy networks, production, storage, distribution. So there's 10 sectors involved in either making, moving or using hydrogen. And the Hydrogen Innovation Initiative initiative is a group of research centers who are mainly doing industrial research. So we're not academia, we're doing industrial projects and we've come together, bring together our networks and our industrial partners from across all these sectors to say, look, we need to think about where we can effectively think of these as cross-sector challenges. I sit on the Jet Zero Council Zero Emission Flight Delivery Group. They're worrying about where's the hydrogen coming from, but so is automotive and so is farming. So rather than thinking about that all separately, we're trying to bring these um, communities together to create combined innovation programs. And we've got big ambitions because we think the investment level needed for hydrogen and for the UK to win a large share of that potentially massive future global market is quite large and that we should really be going at it as an opportunity in the UK. No, we've got a lot of offshore wind. Christina, perhaps you can talk to this, but that means potentially that you need long duration energy storage in order to capture that electricity when it's overproducing. Hydrogen is one of the highest potential candidates for capturing that overproduction of hydrogen. So a vision of a future UK energy system might be that crucial mix of wind, nuclear for baseload and hydrogen to kind of match in between them. And once you've got it with our strong transport supply chain base, it kind of makes hydrogen and hydrogen supply chains a bit of a, a no brainer as part of our future industrial strategy. The very definition of a kind of systems challenge to think through, which obviously gets the team at the Energy Systems Catapult absolutely excited. And just to give listeners a kind of sense of scale, correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, on this, the UK hydrogen demand at the moment is probably 25 terawatt hours a year. And none of that or very small amount of that is clean hydrogen in, in the sense. It's kind of conventional, traditional dirty hydrogen, so created in a way that, that releases CO2. 
And our modeling and energy system catapult would say, in order to meet those kind of hard to abate sectors, you're talking about a low carbon or zero carbon hydrogen economy of 250, 300 terawatt hours. So an entirely new energy economy, sector of the economy, about the same size as the current power system in no time at all. So the opportunity, and if you think about that globally, is absolutely massive. But where do you use it in the most targeted way is a really big challenge. Just to come back on one area, as you talk about the hard to abate sectors, hydrogen is often seen as, as the answer to, to some of those. Are there alternatives equally being explored that may chip away at hydrogen's role in, in that? Is it a kind of race between different technologies or is actually just the fundamental physics in some of these areas means it's got to be something that's kind of gas based? It's a mixture, right, of those two. So where you need hydrogen as a feedstock in a chemical process, you need it. And as yeah. a minimum, we have to convert the current grey hydrogen that you're talking about from fossil fuels to green. Just doing that will create a whole new new sector and chain. But there's also applications where, yes, it might not be hydrogen. It's one of the it's probably very high potential candidate because I mean this might feel odd to people, but our technology for hydrogen has actually been around for quite a long time. First gas turbine was burnt using hydrogen. Rowan Atkinson the other week was driving a hydrogen car around um, around a racetrack. We've had fuel cells for decades now. So it's really just been about because we had fossil fuels, hydrogen wasn't used, if that makes sense. Like fossil fuels have got large advantages over hydrogen in terms of their ease of movement and their, the volume that they take up in storage. But hydrogen is a good second best because it's very energy dense. So I think, yes, there is some uncertainty. So an aviation is, and I mean, transport is the, the area I know best and where I know what the, the options are. So as an example, will we in future run diggers from hydrogen where we burn it in an internal combustion engine and then capture any, like allow the water to come out the back and capture the NOx or by NOx, I mean nitrous oxide, or will we create synthetic fuels from biomass or from like chemical processes where you combine carbon and hydrogen, <laughs> you know, but I think what what those sectors are saying, the transport sectors that have got that are harder to abate, they're saying, okay, we might not use hydrogen on the vehicle. That is uncertain. We need to develop and mature the technology to do that. But we will definitely need hydrogen, even if we use these synthetic fuels, because it's a key feedstock. So they use language like hydrogen is around the corner. Whichever way we turn, we're going to need more clean, low-carbon, zero-carbon hydrogen. So there is no doubt that the demand yeah. is going to increase. The question is, how much? Is it three times? Is it 10 times? And that's the chain. Chris, in your, in your odyssey around the country, chatting to everyone linked to net zero kind of challenge or cohort, as it were, you would have been pushed every which way on hydrogen and the role of hydrogen in the future economy. How do you reflect on that and the key areas of innovation? Obviously, we have lots of round tables. Uh, and actually, sometimes I'd sit back as chair and listen to everyone have it out over sort of certain areas of uh, technological certainty or, or uncertainty. Obviously, hydrogen for heating was one of those where you know, various different subsectors of vested interests would be sort of... Uh, going at each other around how we need to remain technologically agnostic. And I think there is a, an important challenge there to be set around innovation, which is obviously that interface between 
yes, of course, you know, we want agnosticism and we don't want to rule out any technologies, but where the evidence begins to weigh itself to a certain point where actually trying to keep everything on the table is just disruptive and a waste of taxpayers' money. We've got to be able to come up with a better framework than rather just waiting on sort of vested lobby interests to help decide this. You know, we do need almost like a new treasury green book when it comes to net zero innovation that's actually going to say this you know, is going to deliver and, and create value for money. And there, there is a value for money argument, I think, you know, as well as a technological one. That means that we are going to probably have to close off you know, certain sort of technologies at some point and say, I'm sorry, you know, you've had enough time to develop your case and you simply haven't made it. At the same time, you know, the, the challenge is also one of geography and taking a place-based approach, as I know the Energy Systems Catapult has done a lot of work on this in the past, you know, with your local area energy planning. You know, you have greater certainty by knowing more about what you need to know in order to develop the landscape, which the technologies can then be used and be uh, fit for that purpose. So, you know, that needs to happen at the same time, and, and you know, particularly around your know, hydrogen and, you know, looking at industrial decarbonisation. One of the reasons why I believe in a mission-based approach is partly, obviously, we need that long-term certainty. You know, with a mission should also come long-term stable funding streams. And obviously, the government's committed that to nuclear. It's partially committed that to CCUS. It should commit that to hydrogen. Um, you know, it's not fair, you know, in this global net zero race that Germany has a hydrogen strategy that has £10 billion over 10 years, where we've still got a hydrogen innovation fund of £243 million and no certainty after the next three years about what might happen. You know, we've got these distant targets of 10 gigawatts, 5 gigawatts worth of uh, electrolytic sort of hydrogen. And that's great. But, you know, we need the money, like the certainty of the funding behind that to unlock private investment yeah, as well. Uh, and what I would say is that you know, there's some fantastic work going on in high and air, you know, whether it's Acorn, the cluster or in Hull. And, you know, they're all competing against each other in a way that is a bit unhelpful, I think, sometimes. You know, we've created that artificial structure, but also going around the country. It doesn't really tackle the issue of dispersed sites. You know, we talked about cement works. We talked about there are a number of industrial sites that don't have access to geologic storage. You know, they, they aren't in an industrial cluster. And we put them to a side as a sort of poorer relation. And we really need to get on with thinking far more innovatively about where is hydrogen going to be transported, stored, and how do we create those networks, which you know, we've not really taken that work forward at the pace that we need to. That role for really thinking about the planning of this economy fits absolutely with some of the points Christina was making about certainty and uh, other areas. And that's got to happen at different granularities. It's got to happen locally, as we've argued, it's got to happen nationally, etc. You've got to create a space for innovation, but you, you're going to have to plan the way this works. Right, final comments from the panel. I'm going to go around and I'd like people to just say which innovations they are most excited about, as well as anything that they want to capture from the discussion. I'm going to start with Christine. Doesn't necessarily have to be in the offshore renewable sector? No, no. An innovation I'm most excited about, we've talked about hardware a lot and different energy vectors and others today. When the hardware is developed and it's installed and everything is operating, what I find most exciting is the opportunities afforded by the widespread use of digital technologies, robotics and autonomous systems and how they are going to help us operate these assets through time and do it efficiently and do it reliably going forward. And that cuts across any of these measures that we've talked about today. And that's what makes them exciting for me. 
really good one that links to Chris's point about uh, thinking about the demand side and the integrate how all this stuff is going to fit together and the role of digital technologies is something certainly where the energy systems catapult get super excited about. Katie, what's top of your list? The UK has world leading competency, like really, really world leading competency in measurement and testing. Right. It's it's not only in terms of the development of the sensors and the imaging technology, but also in terms of the digital tech and analytics that you use to kind of apply and make it intelligent. And I think when we are moving to this new world, you know, there's an opportunity that those sense that sensing technology, that monitoring becomes much, much more pervasive on these new plants and these cars and the new new world of the future. So we have this almost this pervasive sensing world, this world that's a bit more like a human body, you know, that self-monitoring, self-healing, self-adapting. And for me, that is the thing that's most exciting. And Britain is one of the best countries in the world at it. And we should really go at that measurement, testing, asset management piece, like, like there's no tomorrow. And Chris, what gets you excited about the, the, the future? I'm going to go more to the domestic context here, because buildings make up the second largest amount of our emissions, 24, 25%. Yeah, the innovation that has taken place in buildings and construction, it's been pretty static for the past sort of 50 years. And now, because of net zero, that has woken up, as Katie said, a hugely exciting time to be an engineer, but also in construction and the materials for the future, but also the humble air source heat pump. Because when you look at boilers, okay, we've had the innovation of the condenser boiler, but because we thought that was all that was needed, no one ever really you know, thought very closely about innovation in, in heating systems. And now, and I know, Guy, you've done work on this in Birmingham with looking at room-based sort of heating, thermostatic temperatures, you know, almost a revolutionary idea that everyone you know, had this central heating system that came in in the 60s. Every room was heated at the same temperature. You know, it's now going to phenomenally change things. People will have rooms heated to different temperatures, but also... We're going to have air source heat pumps that the condensers are going to fit into the same space as a condenser boiler. I've seen these things being manufactured. They haven't been sort of come out in the public realm yet. You know, you haven't been released yet. But we are on a cusp, I think, a tipping point where just like I said with smart TVs, we are going to see the technology of the heat pump really sort of come to the fore. And people are going to realise how effective these things are in terms of the coefficients and actually how little energy they use compared to gas boilers. So that's where I'm most excited to see. Because I, I just know that in five years' time, the world is going to be a, a very different place in terms of the products that will be on the market. Indeed. Right. We will have to stop it there. Thank you. Huge, warm, massive thank you to the panel. We have touched on a huge range of issues. The reality of how long energy innovation can often take, the kind of decades, the importance of the policy context, everything from giving clarity to the place-based activity. This really important point that this innovation is not just about hardware. This is about consumer offerings. It's about, crucially, this collision of digital and energy, which is such an exciting space. And a huge thank you to my panel for touching on all of those issues. This has been the Catapult Network's Supercharging Innovation Series. I hope you can join us for some other ones. And now over to Catherine to finish us off. Thank you, Guy. I really enjoyed this discussion, which explored so many challenges particularly how the UK must rapidly ramp up net zero solutions while simultaneously reducing reliance on fossil fuels, and all in a very short timeline. We also heard how the UK is world-leading in measurement and testing, how domestic heating can revolutionise UK homes, and how digital technologies 
can inform our next steps towards a net zero future. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Catapult Network Supercharging Innovation Podcast, powered by Innovate UK, available wherever you get your podcasts. If, after listening to this episode, you have questions, suggestions, or simply want to tell us your thoughts, get in touch with us via social media through our website, catapult.org.uk or via your podcast app. Help us put UK innovation under the spotlight. Subscribe now.